Welcome to Can't Make This Up. I'm your host, Kevin. Well, after what has definitely become an election for the history books, uh, the ideas like a peaceful transfer of power, what's in the Constitution, democracy, voting rights, representation, the separation of powers, these are things that are on everyone's mind. These are the fundamentals of what form our government, and they were placed there by the nation's founders. Well, where did the founders get these ideas? What kind of books were they reading? What were they thinking about? What kinds of things were they discussing amongst themselves when they decided to forge a new country? My guest today has immersed himself in the intellectual world of the 18th century in order to think long and hard about these questions. Thomas E. Ricks was a journalist for 20 years, during which time his reporting won two Pulitzer Prizes. Today, Tom joins me to discuss his new, very timely book, First Principles, What America's Founders Learned from the Greeks and Romans, and How That Shaped Our Country. Tom and I discuss how George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, and James Madison were well-versed in the political and philosophical ideas of the ancient Greeks and Romans, and how they built those concepts into the framework of the American government. In my opinion, Tom's book could not be more relevant. Uh, If you are a fan of Can't Make This Up, uh, subscribe to the podcast. Uh, Please like it and review it. Uh, Those things are incredibly helpful in getting the word out about the show. Uh, If you want to follow along, uh, check out the show on social media. It is on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at CMTU History. I'm very excited that we are almost to 1,000 Twitter followers. That's a huge milestone. I think it's uh, 980-something right now. So if you don't currently follow the show on Twitter, uh, consider checking it out. One other way to support the podcast is if you would like to become a patron on the show's Patreon page, uh, check out patreon.com forward slash CMTU history. For as little as a dollar, you can support the show, support its production, and get access to some cool bonus content. For example, to pair with this episode, Tom was nice enough to answer a bonus question for Patreon supporters. Uh, where I asked him, with everything going on today, like polarization in politics and populism and misinformation campaigns and social media, is the system the founders created equipped to handle that? He gave a very interesting response, and you can check it out on the show's Patreon. There's a link for it in the description of this episode in your podcast app. All right, well, let's get to my conversation with Tom Ricks. The You Can't Make This Up History Podcast. Bringing you strange but true things from the past. It's not the average history that you learned in school. We're bringing you the heroes and bringing you the fools. And stories that are just too crazy to believe. The stranger than fiction and super unique. Tom Ricks, thanks for coming on the podcast. You're welcome. Happy to be here. If you would be so kind, uh, introduce yourself to the listeners. Uh, Who are you? What's your background? 
My name is Tom Ricks, or formerly Thomas E. Ricks. I'm a writer. Uh, I was a journalist for about 20 years, mainly a war correspondent. I operated in Somalia, Bosnia, Bosnia, Haiti, Kosovo, Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, other places. And then about 10 years ago, I left full-time journalism, and I've been a full-time book writer since then. Oddly, something I find far more natural, more comfortable than being a journalist. I've noticed quite a few of the authors that I interview in the history area, they kind of have this background in, in you know, foreign journalism. Uh, I think the journalism is a natural place for people who are curious and like words. Uh, I've always, I felt since I was a, a child that I was born to write, that I'm somehow I'm all about words. And it wasn't just me who thought so. I remember a colleague of my father's. Uh, my father was a professor at Brandeis University at the time. I was about six years old, and a colleague of my father's gave me a book on the origins of words when I was six. I still have the book. Uh, well, you you are a, uh, a very good writer. Your, your, your book was very engrossing. And so, so the book we're going to talk about uh, today is, is called First Principles, what America's founders learned from the Greeks and Romans and how that shaped our country. And uh, even in just kind of your, your prologue and, and introduction uh, statement, uh, there's a lot of interesting things to, that we can talk about. Um, you decided to dive into what you call the fundamentals of American government. What made you decide to do this? Uh, it was exactly four years ago uh, that it was the morning after Donald Trump was elected president. It was a gray Wednesday morning. I was in my house here in Maine. And I woke up and I thought, what just happened last night? I don't understand the outcome of this election. I don't understand what a lot of Americans seem to think this country is. And I've been taught in college that to understand something when you're really baffled by it, go back to, as you say, the fundamentals, to the first principles. And so I walked downstairs to my library and took down my college copy of Aristotle's Politics. And I began rereading it in the context of the election of Donald Trump, reading this basic analysis of what politics are and how they work. And I was struck among other things, one thing Aristotle says in politics is that there are three basic forms of government, uh, monarchy or tyranny, that is a king, aristocracy or oligarchy that is ruled by the wealthy or the rich, I mean, by the, by the best or the rich, or um, de democracy of some sort, which they basically called rule by the mob, by the people. One thing that Aristotle says in that is that oligarchies are the least stable form of government. And it occurred to me that Donald Trump would be a sort of one of the more unstable presidencies we'd ever seen simply through Aristotle's analysis. And that led me to read a bunch of other Greek and Roman history and philosophy books. And that led me in turn to reading about the influence of the Greek and Roman philosophers on the founding of America. What I came to realize very quickly in the course of a couple of years of research is that Rome, Roman history, especially uh, much more than Greece, was crucial to the people who designed this country, who made the revolution and then wrote the constitution. And the reason was they didn't have a lot of examples when they founded this country. 
of a country that was run by the people. Now, most governments and most of history had been some form of kingship or queens, a monarchy. They wanted to have something different. So uh, there weren't many republics in history. The most famous and the one they really focused on was the Roman Republic before it's taken over by uh, a general, Julius Caesar, and becomes a, a monarchy with an emperor. And so to them, uh, Roman history, and to a lesser extent, some of the histories of Greek city-states, have the urgency of front-page news. How did they run those countries? And what were the flaws that led to their downfall? Uh, so for example, uh, they decide, I don't think entirely correctly, but this is what they decided. Founders said, well, the two things that really tripped up Rome were factionalism and corruption. By factionalism, they really mean division into partisanship, into political parties. And corruption, they meant basically luck, the love of luxury and money in politics. And they were determined to avoid those two things. And you can't understand, for example, somebody like John Adams as president. He was a terrible president. He succeeded George Washington, not an easy act to have. He had a terrible president who threw people who criticized him into jail, partly because he was so focused on avoiding factionalism. He thought faction meant treason. And he was so focused on stability and not having the republic fall apart that he really became very undemocratic and unconstitutional in his behavior as president. So as, as you look at these characters and, and your cast is, you know, George Washington and John Adams, who you mentioned, as well as Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, and, and you do some comparisons between them. Um, but as you, as you dive into their world, you, you set a statement and it's in like the first paragraph of the book that I really liked. Um, you say going into the past is going into a foreign country. Why did you word it that? Because it really is different. You can't assume, even when they use the same words that we use, that they mean what we mean. This really came home to me with the word virtue. Virtue, these days, if it's ever used, is kind of a euphemism for female chastity or the lack of female chastity. A woman of easy virtue is a phrase we use to read or hear. Virtue, to the people who made this country, was an entirely different thing it basically meant a public mindedness, a willing to put the common good before one's own interest. And to them, virtue is crucial. The word virtue pops up about twice as much as the words freedom and liberty do in the writings of the revolutionary generation. Uh, they were very focused, does a person have virtue? Is a, that a person of honor? And the models they took for how to be a virtuous person, again, came from Rome. So if you start with Washington, he models himself in his youth on Cato. Now it's interesting because Washington was not an educated man. Uh, he didn't read a lot. He never spoke a foreign language, never traveled to Europe, unlike uh, the other of the first three presidency. He really uh, did not, he did not have a college education. Yet his favorite play was Cato, which was an incredibly important and popular play in the 18th century. And he models himself on Cato, this Roman politician who opposes the rise of Julius Caesar and is known for characteristics of frugality, wisdom, prudence, and reserve. He's a distant man on purpose. One of my favorite stories in the book is 
Gouverneur Morris was arguing with his friend Alexander Hamilton about whether Washington really was as distant and remote as he seemed to be. And uh, Hamilton said, oh, yes, he is. And Gouverneur Morris said, no, he's not. Come on, nobody could be like that all the time. Hamilton said, tell you what, make you a bet. You go in and slap Washington on the soldier. You go in and slap George Washington on the shoulder in greeting and see what happens. If you do that, I will buy you a good dinner for 10 people with good wine. Governor Morris does this. He walks in, gives George Washington a hearty greeting with a clap on the shoulder. Washington draws himself back, stares at Morris for almost a full minute, and then strides out of the room. Morris went to the dinner that Hamilton had promised and said, I will never do that again, even for another good dinner like this. So Washington really becomes a very reserved man. He, he, he needs this partly because he had a volcanic temper and he needed a model to help him learn to contain that temper, which he did most of his life. Although a couple of times in the war, in the Revolutionary War, he lost his shit on the battlefield. And once in a cabinet meeting, he memorably exploded at Hamilton and Jefferson for their constant squabbling. But the others had different models. John Adams really took Cicero, another Roman politician, a great orator, but not as uh, reserved as Cato. Cicero was voluble. He loved to write, he loved to talk about Rome. Uh, and as Trollope, the British novelist and historian noted, he loved to talk about himself as much as he loved to talk about Rome. Then you have Thomas Jefferson, who is an exception here because while he's very influenced by the ancient world, it's more by Greece than by Rome. Of the first four presidents, he's the only one who's more influenced by Greek philosophy. Uh, Epicurus, the philosopher of Epicureanism, which says that the purpose of life is to pursue happiness and to avoid pain. Very different from a Cato who says, the purpose of life is to serve your country. And, and this does make sense if you look at Jefferson's lifestyle. Jefferson's interesting in that way. And I think it leads to a problem for Jefferson. I gotta tell you, there's an old saying among American historians that the more you know about George Washington, the more you admire him. I'm gonna say the opposite is, the more I learned about Thomas Jefferson, the less I thought of him. Of the four people who were profiled in this book and discussed and compared, I would say that I have the biggest problem with Jefferson because there is the widest gap between his words and his deeds. He is a guy who wrote eloquently about liberty and freedom, yet all his life lived off of the sweat of enslaved people that he held captive, people he treated as his property. And there's no seeming recognition of this, of this great contradiction. Uh, there's, there's also a bit of the romantic, capital R romantic in Jefferson. He's moving a little bit away from the stoic classicism of the others and more towards a Greek view of the world that you see in the 19th century with Greek revival, with the German, Germans focusing on Greek literature. By the way, um, the others really didn't read the great Greek dramatists that we think of as the leading dramatists of the ancient world. But Jefferson, um, did, you read, did you read some of them sometimes? 
Um, and then there's Madison, who's almost a new generation. He and Alexander Hamilton kind of come along after the revolution and say, you know, we got to redesign this country. This Articles of Confederation thing isn't working. And Madison, to his great credit, sits down for about four years at his house in Montpelier, Virginia. And I've stood in this room where he studied for four years ancient Greek and Roman history, studying especially the Greek city-states, how they worked with each other, uh, how they had their kind of leagues or confederations, kind of like an ancient version of NATO. And he also studied the decline of the Roman Republic, what were its problems. And he read the Enlightenment philosophers like Montesquieu, who spent much of their time analyzing and discussing Roman history. So Montesquieu, Montesquieu the French philosopher, says republics have two big problems. They can't be big. There only really should be a city-state, and they can't, they don't last long. And so Madison, thinking about all this, says, how can we design a country, a republic that will last a long time and be big, like this country is already big and going to get bigger? And then he goes around and beats the drum for a constitutional convention. He's the first guy to show up in Philadelphia for the constitutional convention. He gives one of the most important early speeches in that convention, laying out a lot of his research. One reason, by the way, that each of our states has two senators now is because in the Amphictyonic League, one of the ancient Greek confederations, each city-state, whether it was big or small, had two votes in their meetings. And then uh, after the constitutional convention, Madison goes out with Hamilton writes the Federalist Papers beating the drum for ratification of the Constitution because each state had a convention to decide whether to support this new Constitution. And it was pretty close in several places. Um, Massachusetts uh, had a big long discussion, finally voted for it because they voted for it. Virginia kind of grudgingly went along. Finally, New York votes for it just barely. Uh, Rhode Island waits another year after Washington becomes president before they approve it. So it was a near-run thing, the Constitution. And then for his last great act before becoming president, in the 1790s, Madison and Jefferson basically invent modern American politics. Uh, you have the beginnings of political parties. And they say, this works. This is a way to have the public that people aren't always going to follow virtue. Sometimes they're going to follow their self-interest. So what we need to do is balance interest with interest. This is one reason in the Constitution, power was dispersed so broadly. It's, it's divided between the federal government and the states. Within the federal government, it's divided between three branches. And unlike, say, the British government, members of the legislature don't serve in the executive. That's why members of Congress have to resign if they become cabinet members in our system. Uh, so you've got three different branches of government, co-equal, all contending and checking and balancing each other. And then within the legislative branch, you have two houses that contend with each other. So there's this very broad dispersal of power by, Jeff by Madison. And he's saying, if you're going to make any progress in this country, you're gonna to have to be able to cut deals, to find compromises and to form alliances. And if you can't, you're gonna be frozen. So I think Madison would argue that when the American system is gridlock, that's not a bug, it's a feature. It's the way it was designed to work. And it's a lot better than having the minority impose its view on the majority 
or the alternative, going to violent disagreement. So now, all these ideas that come out of, of Rome and you know, a little bit out of Greece, when we teach this in the education system, we talk about the Enlightenment. We draw a direct line between uh, John Locke and Montesquieu and Rousseau directly to uh, you know Jefferson and Adams, uh, Jefferson, Madison, and Adams. Um, why do we teach it that way? Why why do we miss this this fixation they had on antiquity? I think it's partly because um, the people who write the textbooks are American historians. They don't know enlightened history or ancient history particularly well, uh, and it's kind of obvious when you look at it because the Enlightenment thinkers are so focused themselves on ancient history. Montesquieu wrote a whole book on the fall of the Roman, Roman Republic. And then his great, his, his masterpiece, The Spirit of Laws, I'd say a good third of it is about Roman history and Roman laws and how they worked. Uh, again and again, uh, they're looking back to Rome especially, and asking themselves questions about how, how can we work in the modern world? What can we take away from Rome? Montesquieu is enormously influential on the Scottish Enlightenment, which is really very separate from the English Enlightenment and much more dynamic. Uh, out of the Scottish Enlightenment, whole new fields of study emerge. Demography, uh, modern, the modern writing of history with Gibbon, uh, modern economics with Adam Smith, and most fascinating to me of all, James Hutton invents geology, which you wouldn't think of as an enlightenment thing, but it begins with a fascinating leap of the imagination. James Hutton, the Scottish guy in inventing geology, says, time out, everybody. The world is not 6,000 years old, which is what the Christian church has been teaching for some time. The world is not millions of years old. It's billions of years old. We don't know how old. But the processes we see in geology are not something that happened in 6,000 years. These things you can tell, you can show what happened when one rock on top of another. And so it's this enormous leap of the imagination that I think changes how people think about the world, about the time, about the role of people in the world. And in fact, you get these interesting combinations. Uh, if you take Adams um, Smith and James Hutton, it kind of leads you to Charles Darwin thinking about evolution and about the marketplace of, of genetic change and about the amount of time it takes for genetic evolution to occur. So this all influences and invigorates the revolutionary generation. And they're very familiar with it because so many of their tutors came from Scotland. Scotland was a poor country, but a very literate country because Presbyterians thought that everybody should be able to read their Bible. So they made sure that even poor people were literate. Scottish universities, Glasgow and Edinburgh and St. Andrews, were much cheaper for poor kids to get into. They could actually attend if they couldn't get into Oxford or Cambridge. So you had a lot of well-educated poor kids hopping tobacco ships going back to North America, and especially to the Chesapeake Bay area. And winding up being hired to tutor people like Thomas Jefferson and people like James Madison. And most notably, uh, John Weatherspoon goes to become president of the College of New Jersey, which today is Princeton. 
He's the first person ever hired from overseas to come run an American college. He is not only a religious uh, cleric, he is also a very political man. And we actually have the lecture notes. I love having stuff like this. We have notes of his lectures on politics. And this is what James Madison learned when he went to Princeton. Princeton really stood out. It had been formed consciously as a national college even before there was a nation. Unlike Harvard and Yale and William and Mary that drew their students mainly from the colonies, the, what are now states where they were located, Princeton consciously wanted students from all over the colonies and even from overseas. So it's sort of a national institution, which kind of foreshadows uh, Madison's later view of America as a national place, not just a group of states. He and uh, Hamilton are much more, I think, national in view than, than they are men of the states. And it's also, Princeton is also very radical. In the 1760s, it was like Berkeley in California was in the 1960s. It was where you went if you were interested in politics and in radical politics. Well, one historian wrote that Princeton in the 1760s smoked with sedition. <laughs> uh, can you elaborate on the, the word system's going to be wrong when I use it, but the education system at the time, um, you know, we, we have a concept in our minds today of what college is, but they, they're dealing with something completely different. The, the, the way that Washington and Adams and Jefferson and Madison were educated is different than what we think of today. Right? Yeah, basically, um, there was no public education really to speak of. There's very little minimal public education. So each little town, uh, New England had more of an emphasis on this than the South. Each little town basically would teach uh, young men for a couple of years enough so they could read basic information and they could do addition, subtraction, and multiplication. But they didn't learn much more than that. Most of them went to school for a couple of years and then they went off to jobs as apprentices or as farmers or working for their parents. Uh, richer people, and there weren't that many, uh, would have tutors, college-educated young men, who maybe before they go off and become um, usually uh, ministers, sometimes lawyers, would teach at a, on a plantation for a couple of years, teach all the kids maybe on the plantation or from richer kids from the area. And they would give boys uh, Latin, maybe a little Greek, and then lead them through some of the ancient classics. And then a small percentage would go off to colleges. There were only a handful, William and Mary in Virginia, uh, Princeton, uh, Yale in Connecticut, Harvard in Boston, and then King's College in Manhattan, New York City, uh, which later becomes Columbia. King's College was founded in reaction to Princeton because the New Yorkers didn't like all this radical stuff going on at Princeton and so wanted a more conservative college, hence the name King's College. They were not gonna be entertaining a lot of re rebellion there. So it's a handful of colleges, and then a very small number of Americans went to Edinburgh, Glasgow, and Oxford and Cambridge, but perhaps I think fewer than 150 over the course of the 150 years of the period we're talking about in early America. And 
college was basically a continuation of this tutoring system. You'd be assigned a tutor and you'd go through the Greek and Roman classics. Uh, you maybe learned uh, rhetoric, how to, give a, how to write a speech and how to give a speech. But basically it was reading the same bunch of books. You wanna learn how to write a letter, you read Cicero. Uh, you wanna learn how to give a speech, you read Cicero and maybe Demosthenes later on when you moved on to the Greeks. And then you went off and upon graduation, you either became a minister, a lawyer, or a teacher. It's interesting, John Adams, uh, the poorest of the four people we're talking about, uh, came from a you know, middle-class, lower middle-class background, a farm. His father was a farmer, respected farmer. Uh, Adams all his life worked with the sands, chopped his own firewood, never owned a slave. Uh, Upon graduation, his parents don't have any money for him. He goes off and gets a job and becomes a school teacher in Worcester, Massachusetts, about 40 miles west of Boston. I can't imagine a personality less fit to be a school teacher of children. <laughs> uh, imagine Woody Allen as a teacher. And that's kind of what I think John Adams was like. It's interesting in his diaries. He, he teaches for a couple of years and says in his diaries almost nothing about it except when he finally uh, stops being a teacher and uh, st starts studying the law, uh, he makes some reference to, well, at least I no longer have to teach those little idiots. Uh, He's a very impatient and, and bristly person. He is. Uh, this is actually one thing I consciously wanted to do in the book is deflate the Adams bubble a bit. We've had a John Adams bubble for a couple of decades in this country, I think because of David McCullough's very good biography of John Adams. And it's really a portrait of a marriage between John Adams and Ad Abigail Adams, uh, his admirable and brilliant wife. And then you, later you had this HBO miniseries about John Adams that kind of has Paul Giamatti portraying Adams as a loudmouth but lovable teddy bear. Uh, Adams was not. He was much more ambitious than that, uh, much more pricklier than that and could really be nasty to people. That said though, I gotta say uh, a couple of words in favor of John Adams. One, he was the, one of the first people out there leading the way toward a revolution, well before the others. And second, for all his problems as a president, uh, he stepped down and turned over power peacefully to the opposition. Uh, he lost the election uh, in 1800 you had a very difficult transition because of the problems with the way the Constitution was written. Aaron Burr and Thomas Jefferson are tied. Finally, it's decided in February that Thomas Jefferson will be president. And Adams, typical of him, makes some last minute appointments to make, make life difficult for Thomas Jefferson when he becomes president. And Adams refuses to attend the inauguration. Instead, on the morning of the inauguration, he catches the 4 a.m. coach to Baltimore and leaves town. Even so, he turned over power peacefully to Thomas Jefferson, the opposition. And this is a first in American history. There's a saying that you don't have a democracy when you elect a president, you have a democracy when the opposition can win an election. And that's what happened in 1800. Thomas Jefferson becomes president. You've had this very rowdy 1790s, especially with Adams throwing editors in jail, people who criticized him. And 
Thomas Jefferson gives what I think is probably his second best document or statement. The first, obviously, is the Declaration of Independence, which is a shining document in American history. But the second is his inauguration address in March 1801. And he says two things that are important and actually relevant to us today. He says, look, I'm the opposition and I'm taking power here. But number one, every difference of opinion is not a difference of principle. In other words, uh, just because someone disagrees with you doesn't mean they're a bad person, doesn't mean they're a traitor. The second thing he says is, I am not gonna throw opposition newspaper editors in jail. In fact, I believe in the free flow of opinion because I think I'm right and I think the opposition, the Federalist Party and John Adams are wrong. But if, but if I'm right and they're wrong, the people can decide that the people will see the error of the, of the opposition's ways. So let's have these as our basic norms. And they are established uh, until Donald Trump comes along and steps on a lot of things that we thought were kind of law, but actually turned out to be more like norms. Like when you lose the election, you admit it, admit it and turn over power peacefully. So the... The system that they built is is incredibly interesting because on on the face of it, it seems like it's built on the premise that uh, virtuous people need to be in power, uh, and that's how you keep the republic up and running. Uh, but you make the case that they built uh, they, they had a better understanding of human nature, and they built a system where what if someone isn't virtuous comes into power? Yeah. I I think that the older generation, especially people like George Washington, really did believe in virtue. They thought that that was the way you had to run a country. It's the younger ones, um, maybe more in the trenches politically, James Madison, who say, you know, that's not working, guys. Uh, they have the Articles of Confederation government through the war and then through the 1780s. And Madison sits down and says, relying on public virtue, is not gonna get you anywhere. And bad people will get into power sometimes. As Madison memorably said, if men were angels, we wouldn't need a government. And so a government is designed to kind of contain and balance people's selfish instincts, uh, to spread power around, to force people into compromises and alliances. So I think Madison very consciously in the Constitution is moving away from the idea of relying on public virtue. But he's, he's not saying it's non-existent. He's just saying it's not enough. That's fair. And so like you mentioned earlier, that idea of gridlock, of pitting people's uh, political figures, personal interests against each other, forcing them to compromise is the feature, not, not necessarily a, a quirk or a deficiency. Yeah, and they're also trying to answer the issue of how do you have a big republic, uh, th this, this continental nation that promises to, to come into existence. Uh, and so they're very concerned about dealing with that and also making it sustainable. I think if they came back today, uh, they would be very pleased to see, first of all, simply that the country has lasted for 270 odd years. That was not a given. Remember, George Washington says in his first inaugural address that this is an experiment, this American experiment. 
and I was struck the other day, Barack Obama talking about America, called it an experiment in multicultural, multi-ethnic democracy. So we still have this experiment. So I think they'd be pleased to see it's lasted this long. The second thing is I think they'd be a little bit embarrassed at how badly they handled the issue of slavery. Now it's easy to criticize them. They were terribly worried that the South would break away and then foreign powers would come in and intervene and that America would simply be a captive of European politics, of the interest of France and Britain and Spain. Nonetheless, they wrote slavery into the American Constitution. As a friend of mine says, slavery is not a stain on the American fabric, it is woven into the American fabric. And we are still pulling those, those threads, those yarns out of the American fabric. To, you know, this late in the country, there are still people who don't seem persuaded that black Americans are first class citizens. The third thing I think, and the final thing, is I think they'd really be shocked by how we have allowed money to dominate our politics. Uh, they would call this corruption in exactly the way they say, saw Rome being brought down by corruption. They'd say the dollar is more important than the vote and that money dominates how your politics work and that is not what we intended. And you people are very close to losing a democracy and instead having an oligarchy ruled by the rich with some democratic trappings. Uh, and that seems to be a little subversive in the way it comes on the scene. It just, it slowly becomes more oligarchical and you don't really realize it till you're there. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of Bernie Sanders, but I think one thing he gets very right is his comment that these days, Congress doesn't regulate Wall Street, Wall Street regulates Congress. They'd say we've given the rich too much power. John Adams explicitly writes, and I quote this in the epilogue to the book, that you don't want too many wealthy people, you don't want too many poor people, you want most of the money in the middle of the country. And we have let that get away from us. Over the last 30 years, the wealthy 1% in this country have captured almost all gains in productivity and turned it into their own income rather than sharing gains in productivity and, and the money that comes from it with the middle class. So, uh, Tom, thank you so much for um, joining me uh, today. Uh, this was a really good discussion, and uh, I definitely encourage people to read the book. It's, uh, it's very eye-opening and just, just tells you where, where our system comes from and, and what the founders, because everybody claims the founders for themselves. It, it really shows what they were thinking. Uh, so if someone wants to learn more about you uh, or the book, where can they go? I'd say follow me on Twitter. Uh, first, read the book. Uh, but then uh, Twitter, I'm Tom Ricks one That's T-O-M-R-I-C-K-S-1. Somebody beat you to it. Uh, you, with Tom Ricks? It is yeah. funny because actually the guy gave it up a few years later. He said, I'm sick of getting all this stuff for you. You can have <laughs> it. But I, I don't... And by that point, I didn't see how to change it or, or combine it. So I've left a Tom Ricks one. Very good. All right. Well, thank you again for coming on the, on the podcast, Tom. You're welcome. I enjoyed it. Hey, gang. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of Can't Make This Up. Uh, I hope that you enjoyed my conversation with Tom Ricks. Uh, he and I discussed some very foundational issues uh, that, uh, at least for my American listeners, uh, are there are things that we care very deeply about? Uh, and so I hope that um, 
you found this interesting. I hope you found it encouraging. Uh, and I hope that uh, it gives you a little bit of better understanding for the system that, that we have in place. Uh, if you want to learn more, uh, I highly encourage that you read Tom's book. Um, his book, again, is First Principles, What America's Founders Learned from the Greeks and Romans and How That Shaped Our Country. Uh, I've provided a link for you in the description of this episode in your podcast app. You can just click on that and that will carry you over to IndieBound.org where you can get connected with a local independent bookseller in your area uh, where you can pick up a copy of the book. All right. With the close of this episode, uh, I want to wish you all a very Merry Christmas. I hope that despite the fact that this has been a really rough year, I hope that you can all find some joy and peace and fellowship this, this holiday season. Uh, for my part, I have one more episode for you in 2020. Uh, I'll be back next week uh, with a conversation that I had with Alelia Bundles. She is the great-great-granddaughter of Madam C.J. Walker, who was the first woman and the first African-American to become a millionaire in U.S. history. So really great interview there. I hope you'll see, see you back next week. Take care. Discover more shows like this one at StraightUpStrange.com.